Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you so much. It's a very kind and exaggerated introduction. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you all today. This is the first time that I've been on the campus of Southeastern. I hope it won't be the last. Absolutely beautiful. Um, I did my seminary studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and uh, with Dr. Rooker and Dr. McDaniel, we were all classmates there together. And uh, I wish that our campus had been as beautiful uh, as this. It is such an incredible, incredible place that God has provided for you here and I know that you all enjoy it. I don't want to waste any uh, time uh, with uh, uh, intro- introductory comments. I want us to dive into God's Word together because I have a lot to share with you all in this short amount of time this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. If you don't have a Bible, uh, my guess is that you probably are already familiar with this passage. I'm only going to read one verse of Scripture. In Psalm 37, David says this in verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Pray with me, if you would, over this passage. Father in heaven, how grateful we are that you are infinitely glorious, infinitely sweet, infinitely powerful. Because we know this means that we can never exhaust you. We can never reach a point at which we can say, well, I've arrived now. There's nothing more to know, nothing more to see, nothing more to enjoy. Thank you that we can look forward to the eternal increase of joy in you, inexhaustible, incomprehensible, unfathomable as you are. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would, that you would do for us what Psalm 119 verse 18 says, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. So we come to you now in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would speak to us, you would encourage us, and that you would do it for the glory and the exaltation of your Son and our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I am asked often, as you might expect, by young men and women such as yourselves, what one word of advice would you have for me as I enter and as I progress through my seminary education? And typically, people expect me to say in response to that, well, you need to devote yourself to mastering as best you can the biblical languages. And I hope and pray that you will do that. Excellent advice. Or they expect me to say something like, uh, be sure that in your time in seminary that you stay rooted and connected in a local church. 
Good advice. I, ho- I hope you will take that to heart. Or perhaps uh, be sure that you do not allow your studies and your devotion to, to the uh, investigation of God's Word to crowd out your wife or your husband or your children. Keep them central in your affections all through your seminary education. That, too, is excellent advice. And I could talk to you this morning about each of those, but that's not what I want to address this morning. My word of counsel to you all is simply this. Labor in the grace of God to cultivate your joy in God. Labor in the grace of God to cultivate and to deepen and to intensify and expand your joy in God. Or, to use the words of Psalm 37, 4, delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I wish that someone had told me this when I was in seminary 40 years ago. Now, the reason I have chosen this as my uh, theme this morning is because I am an unashamed, unapologetic, fire-breathing Christian hedonist. Now, I, I trust that most of you have heard the terminology of Christian hedonism. If you've ever read any of John Piper's books or heard him preach, you would be familiar with it. If you haven't, you may be thinking right now, Christianity, hedonism, isn't that like fried ice, like trying to draw a round square? Aren't those mutually exclusive terms? I can understand that reaction, so let me explain very briefly. I am a hedonist because I am convinced that you cannot desire pleasure too much. But I'm a Christian hedonist because the pleasure that you cannot desire too much is pleasure in God and all that He is for you and His Son. You know, David doesn't say in this psalm, delight yourself, period. That's secular philosophical hedonism, the the, the approach to life which says that every decision you make should be based solely on the capacity that it has to increase your pleasure and decrease or diminish your pain. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself. But David's counsel is that we delight ourselves in God, that we pursue our pleasure in God. Now, let me just say a couple of words about this, if I may, this word delight here, or we could use a a synonym, joy. Why is that so crucial to you, not just while you're in seminary, but maybe especially while you're in seminary, but throughout the course of your life? If you haven't figured this out yet, you need to understand that you have been hardwired for happiness. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying in using the word happiness with what Victoria Osteen said a couple of weeks ago. I don't want to uh, be lambasted on blogs and websites in the way that she justifiably has been. I'm not talking about happiness in the sense of uh, taking delight in a six-figure salary or good sex, although there's nothing wrong with a six-figure salary and good sex, as long as you're married and you get your money honestly. (laughs) Just a little qualification there. I'm not talking about the the kind of psychological giddiness that comes from having healthy self-esteem and, and, you know, living in a large house and enjoying all the benefits and the pleasures and the comforts of Western society. It's not what I mean by happiness. I'm talking about 
this chronic, unending ache in your soul that you wake up with every single day of your life for joy. You were built by God to be fascinated. Nothing is more contrary to the way God designed the human heart than boredom. He's created us to be fascinated and to delight ourselves in Him. This impulse that I'm describing that you feel, you know it exists, it's not the result of sin. I think this is part of the image of God. It's not because your parents raised you in a dysfunctional family. It's not because uh, you had a bad education. God hardwired you this way. That's why Psalm 1611, which is my life verse, makes sense. David says, You have made known to me the pathway of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. That's an incentive to pursue God. But it makes no sense. It will never register until we realize that we want fullness of joy, that we long for pleasures that never lose their capacity to enthrall us and to satisfy us. The underlying assumption of a verse like Psalm 1611 is that we were built for joy and we were built for pleasure. The problem is we just seek to satisfy it and fulfill it in ways in which God has forbidden. Now, Come back to this passage, this exhortation. Delight yourself in the Lord. I want you to think about what this says to us in light of what I've just mentioned. Notice, first of all, this is a command. It's an exhortation. This isn't something that you are to leave here today and say, hey, let's go pray about whether we should obey Psalm 37.4. You don't pray about this. God has not given us options. You don't need to go seek an appointment with a counselor to get some advice on whether Psalm 37.4 is important for your life. You can't write this off as an issue of personality. You can't say, well, I think that's a verse that's meant for extroverts, and I'm kind of introverted, and I'll let them do that. I'm a little bit more melancholy. This is not an issue of temperament. You you can't say, well, Lord, I appreciate uh, the opportunity, but this just isn't my style. No, this is a command. This is a moral obligation. As strange as it sounds, delight is a duty. Delight yourselves in the Lord. Notice also that delight is an affection. It's a feeling. I I hesitate to use the word emotion because, as we know, emotion rises and falls sometimes, many times, unrelated to truth and reality. And so I'd rather use the word affection, drawing upon the language of Jonathan Edwards. And because it is an affection, because it is a subjective feeling, you and I cannot produce it by an act of will. I can't stand here before you today and say, all right, I'm going to grip my teeth, clench my fist, close my eyes and say, joy, just make it happen. You can't do that. God has to evoke joy in our hearts and in our spirits. He has to stir and awaken these affections in our souls. And He does it through a variety of means. He's given us the Scriptures as, as, a, as a tool, as an instrument, as theologians call it, as a means of grace to stir joy and to awaken us to the reasons why we should delight in God. 
He's given us creation. We just sang about it a moment ago. To behold the beauty of God in nature. He's given us the ordinances of the church as means of grace. Obedience, prayer, worship, fellowship with one another, meditation on God's Word. I love the way Jonathan Edwards put it when he said that our responsibility is to lay our, ourselves in the way of allurement. Think, he says, lay yourself in the way of allurement. His point was this, that God has ordained certain pathways, certain responsibilities that we are to pursue, we're to posture ourselves in that pathway, and in doing so, we greatly increase the probability that we will encounter God in a life-changing heart-captivating way. Here's a silly illustration. Um, I've never had anybody yet come to me and say, Sam, I've experienced a lot in life, but I've never experienced being struck by lightning. I'd like to try that out. Then it will never happen, but illustration, okay? If they came to me and said that, I said, well, I I think I can increase the odds. I said, just get yourself about a six-foot iron rod and wait for a really big thunderstorm, and then walk up to the highest point in your community, climb a tree, and stick it up in the air, and wait. Now, that doesn't guarantee you're going to be struck by lightning, but it really increases the chances. And the point is this. God has said, there are certain things that I've ordained for you and set forth in Scripture that are comparable to holding that iron rod and waiting to be struck by lightning. If you want to encounter me in a life-changing way, then lay yourself in the way in which you are more likely than not to be allured and captivated by my beauty. But the question begs to be answered, why joy? Why delight? Why has God hardwired this passion into our hearts? Isn't it enough for you and me just to obey God? Why not just fear God? Why not just believe God or worship God? I mean, those are all biblical responsibilities. Why joy? Why is that so central in Scripture? Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, I believe that joy in God more clearly and thoroughly reveals the worth and value of God than anything else. In other words, it's the single most effective means for glorifying and magnifying God. Deep, durable delight in God. Deep, durable delight in God honors Him and glorifies Him more than anything else. You've heard Piper say it. You've read it in his books. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. The point being that God is most glorified, honored, exalted, and magnified when we are most pleased and fascinated and enthralled with the splendor of His beauty as revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You think about those times when you are going through the most horrific suffering, the most uh, trying of circumstances, and your delight in God is what sustains you And somebody sees that. Now, if all they see is that that you continue to obey, that's good that you continue to believe in Him through times that maybe you ought to be doubting. That's good. But when they see that your heart is captivated and there is deep, 
durable delight in him in the midst of those circumstances. They go, wow, what kind of God must this be? That he can elicit that kind of joy, not just subservience or obedience, but that kind of joy in the midst of that kind of suffering. Again, as Piper said, joy is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. Listen to that. It is the clearest witness to the worth of what we enjoy. It is the deepest reverberation in the heart of man of the value of God's glory. That's why joy is so central. All of us agree, I know we do, that we're supposed to glorify God. I mean, probably why you're here, that you have that ultimately as your aim. But the question is, by what means is God most and preeminently glorified and honored? I believe it's when our knowledge of Him and our experience of Him ignites a virtual forest fire of passion and delight and pleasure, and it consumes all other Temptations, all other experiences, all other appeals, and we are utterly absorbed by and consumed with Him. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards put it. He said, God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, and by the word seen He means understood, apprehended, grasped, known. God is glorified not only by His glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. God made the world that He might communicate and the creature receive His glory, both with the mind and the heart. He that testifies having an idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. That is to say, his heartfelt commendation or praise of it. Now, don't think that Edwards or I or anybody else who advocates Christian hedonism is saying that understanding the nature of God isn't important. Of course it is. That's why you're here, at least to some degree. Theological ignorance won't take you very far. Theological ignorance destroys any possibility of delight in God. Excitement uninformed by truth leads ultimately to fanaticism or idolatry or both. You cannot delight in God in an intellectual vacuum. Knowledge is absolutely essential, but it's not enough. Never make your knowledge, your study of God's Word, the things that you learn, an end in itself. Theological precision is not the goal. Worship is. Theological precision and understanding and a grasping of what God has revealed is designed to awaken in us not just the knowledge of God, but joy in God. I wish that I had known that long before I ever learned it. I think it might have had a more significant impact on my own arrogance and pride that comes with learning God's Word. So the joy that we're talking about here that is so central to the glorifying of God 
is a state of soul in which we experience and express what I call optimum ecstasy in God. Does that sound appealing to you? What impact would this have on our world? If we orchestrated our lives, our church ministries, our, our, our times of worship, the way we conduct ourselves just throughout the routine uh, responsibilities of life, and it was evident that we were living in optimum ecstasy in God. The joy then that David's speaking about here in Psalm 37, as I said, should never be thought of in terms of, well, I feel good about myself, or I'm living in the lap of luxury. This is a deep, durable delight in God that ruins you for anything else. It's deep. It's not just surface. It doesn't just, it's not a superficial experience. It's durable. It sustains you through the worst of circumstances. And it's a deep, durable delight, not just a, a cranking out obedience, not just following God out of a sense of moral obligation. It's a delight in the splendor of God as revealed in Jesus that just utterly ruins you for anything else. So that's why joy is important. Because more than anything else, it enables us to honor and exalt God. Second thing about joy. Joy in God matters profoundly because apart from your soul relishing and resting in the beauty of Christ, you don't stand a chance against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, the key to successful Christian living does not come from trying harder. It comes from enjoying more. And I'm not saying by that that you can live a Christian life without trying. It's a battle. It's a war. Scripture tells us it's a, it's a daily conflict. What I'm saying is enjoyment empowers effort. Pleasure in God is the power for purity in life. I don't think many Christians realize how deeply committed Satan is to your joy. You, see, you think, oh, no, Satan's here to create misery. No, he's not. He's here to create your, and to deepen your joy in the passing pleasures of sin, which, of course, ultimately will result in your misery. But Satan is committed to convincing you, hey, listen, the world, the flesh, and me, Satan, we can do things for your soul that God either can't or won't. That's the power of temptation. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I've shared this many times. It just resonates with me. I got a phone call. It's been probably 15 years ago. I'd never met this lady. Um, she had read a book that I wrote. She called me, just wanted to talk. And in the course of our conversation, she said, we've been through a horrible experience here in our church. Our senior pastor went back to uh, his 20th high school reunion. And reconnected with his high school sweetheart. He came back and he told his wife, his kids, and the church that um, he's, he's resigning the church, leaving the ministry, and he's going to run off with his high school sweetheart. I said, wow, what'd you do? She said, well, we staged an intervention. We orchestrated it so that he was present when his parents and his children and leaders of the church and his best friends and his wife were all present and she said, we spent three hours telling him of the horrid consequences that would follow if he, if he carried through with this decision. She said, we got real graphic with him. Your, your kids, are, you're going to lose their respect. 
You're going you're gonna to shame the name of Christ. You're going to destroy the ministry of this church. Um, you're going to lose friends. I said, wow, what happened? She said, well, after three hours he got up, thanked us, and then ran off with his high school sweetheart. And it dawned on me. The allure of the immediate gratification of sin was more powerful than the fear of its long-term consequences. Let me say that again. The allure of the immediate gratification of sin, what he thought he was going to get by running off with his high school sweetheart, was more powerful in his life and shaping his decisions than the fear of whatever long-term consequences it would bring. You see, if all you bring to bear against the temptation of the enemy is the threat of what you'll suffer if you choose to rebel, that doesn't work for very long. The only way you conquer the appeal of one pleasure is with the power and the satisfaction of a superior pleasure. And that only comes from delight and joy and satisfaction and fascination with God. Now, a third reason why joy is important. Joy, more than anything else, expresses and engages the whole soul. Uh, if I were to go read a book about how a car works and learn something about mechanics and, and the engine, it wouldn't matter because every time I raise the hood of a car, I get physically nauseated. I'm sickened. I, don't, I hate the thought of having to think about what's going Now, I could educate myself and learn everything that needs to be known about how a car operates, but I would still be sick to my stomach. You see, you can understand something and deeply dislike it. You can make choices that you would rather not make that bring you great suffering. For example, if, if you were to ask me over for dinner and you were to serve squash, God forbid, the most wretched thing that ever sprouted or came out of the earth. But if you were to serve squash, I would smile and I, I would eat it and hopefully not regurgitate in your presence and um, so I would engage my will but there'd be no delight in it but you see there's something about joy even when you really experience joy it engages the mind and the heart and the will it is holistic when you truly rejoice in something it engages the whole of the human soul and then lastly joy in God matters because as best I can tell, there's no such thing as hypocritical joy. At least as far as I know, no such thing as insincere joy. Now, you can pretend to have joy when you don't. We do that all the time. We smile on the outside and inside we're enraged. I can pretend to enjoy that squash. No, ladies, you cannot prepare it in a way that I would like it. Just put that myth to rest that it doesn't exist. When, when Adam sinned and God cursed the ground because of it, squash came forth. We're all cursed. You see, you can fake having joy, but you can't have fake joy. Joy is by definition sincere and pure and pristine and genuine so that leaves us then with this question. How do I obey this command? 
I understand the centrality of joy, how God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied and delighted and enthralled with Him. How do I do this? It's a good question. I enjoy my wife by spending time with her. By the way, I did propose to her on the first date. That's not good advice, okay? <laughs> Don't go and do likewise, please. But we just celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary, so it took. What can I say? And you're wondering, what did she say? Um, she didn't say yes the first time, but eventually. <laughs> I enjoy baseball by going to games, and I'm a nerd, and I love reading box scores. I enjoy ice cream by eating. I enjoy my grandchildren by playing with them. How do we enjoy God? How, how, do, we, how do you, during your time of seminary life, Delight yourself in the Lord. Let me quickly just give you a couple of examples. The first is what I call intellectual fascination. Intellectual fascination. You have to make use of your mind to set yourselves to know God. I'm talking about intellectual enthrallment with God. And where your understanding is expanded and deepened and intensified. Study Him. Learn about Him. Explore His ways. Know Him. Investigate His will. Become a student of the personality and the character of God. And I assure you, He will captivate your mind. That's why, as I said, true delight in God cannot exist and cannot flourish in an intellectual vacuum. You cannot meaningfully rejoice or delight in someone of whom you know nothing. Joy that is not deeply rooted in the historical reality of what God has done for us in Christ as set forth in Scripture is little more than infatuation. That ought to be your motivation for immersing yourself in your studies. Second, first, intellectual fascination. Second, aesthetic adoration. Aesthetic adoration. Here's what I mean by that. You not only have been hardwired by God, as I think part of His image, to desire joy, but you have also been hardwired to respond to beauty and ugliness. We are, I think, by creation, aesthetic beings. We are instinctively drawn to beauty and we are repelled by ugliness. And God is ultimate beauty. Everything else we see, no matter how glorious nature may be, it's all derivative. It's secondary. Every attribute of God individually is singularly splendid. And all of God's attributes, the symmetry, the harmony, the totality of who He is as revealed in Scripture reveals beauty in its consummate expression. That's why David said in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Psalm 145, verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. David's saying the object of my pursuit and my study is the incomparable, transcendent, all-satisfying, sublime beauty of God. If you go back after this chapel service and look in your theology text, maybe at least especially before the last 25 or 30 years, you will probably find nothing on the beauty of God. You look under the list of attributes. 
maybe a, a footnote or a sentence, hardly a paragraph on the beauty of God. And yet, as, August, as Augustine said, God is beauty itself. He described Him as my Father, supremely good, beauty of all things beautiful. In creation we see His beauty. In providence, in Scripture, in Jesus Christ. Beauty in God is that which makes Him eminently desirable and attractive. There's just such perfect order and harmony and magnitude and proportion and integrity and brilliance in the being of God. He is aesthetically elegant. But not only is beauty informative, it's transformative. When you, when you encounter beauty, it changes you. It's what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he said, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. The point of that is, what we see is what we be. What you behold is what you become. Beauty takes hold of us and it challenges the allegiance of our heart rebukes us for giving ourselves to that which is ugly. Aesthetic adoration. A third thing, emotional exhilaration. Emotional exhilaration. Our affections have been created and shaped by God to be focused on Him and fulfilled in Him. And by affections, I'm talking about zeal and love and dedication and delight and fear and joy and passion and gratitude and hope. It's what Peter had in mind in 1 Peter 1.8 when he says that we don't see Jesus with our physical eyes now, yet we still love Him. And we believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So how would you describe your joy in Christ? Is it inexpressible, ineffable? When somebody asks you, uh, tell me about your delight in, in Christ, do you respond by saying, Ooh, do you struggle for words? That's what he means when it's inexpressible. It's ineffable. The, the dictionary hasn't been created that, and the tongue hasn't been shaped that can articulate the depths of delight in Christ of that sort. He's talking about the exhilaration of our affections. Be sure as you go through seminary life and beyond that all you do will intensify, not anesthetize, but intensify and deepen your joy and your delight and your gratitude in God. And lastly, volitional dedication. Volitional dedication. What that means simply is this. Delighting in the Lord must engage your will. Disobedience destroys delight in God. Obedience nourishes delight and joy. You simply have to trust God when He comes to you and says... That when I give you a command, when I say thou shalt or thou shalt not, it's not because I'm trying to kill your joy, I'm trying to intensify it. Trust me when I say that obedience is the way to deepen your delight in God. And don't treat delight or joy as merely an after effect of obedience. You know, the, the, the mere byproduct of duty. Make your joy in Christ central to all of your endeavors and all of your studies. One final word of exhortation. I realize that some people can hear what I'm saying today and think to themselves, this, this 
This sounds awfully introspective. This sounds like a safe and passive and self-absorbed lifestyle in which you're really just consumed with the, you know, the condition of your own heart, your own feelings. Nothing can be further from the truth. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that ultimately is going to drive many of you to the mission field, to an unreached people group, to give your life for the sake of the gospel. It is deep, durable delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of Christ that is going to enable you to preserve a marriage when you hit hard times and you want to walk out on your spouse. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of God in Christ that will help you overcome whatever addictive behavior or chronic habitual sin you struggle with. It is deep delight and joy in the all-satisfying beauty of God in Christ that will help you persevere when you lose a job or a ministry or your child rebels or a promise is shattered. It is deep delight and joy in the all-sufficient, satisfying beauty of God in Christ that will drive you and sustain you and strengthen you and give you boldness to confront a Christless culture. We'll close with this. Augustine put it best in the Confessions. He's describing his conversion. He said, and, and if you know anything about Augustine, you know what his life was like before he was saved. He said this, How sweet it was all at once to be rid of those fruitless joys that I once feared to lose. You, God, drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, my God, my light, my salvation. How sweet it was all at once to be rid of those fruitless joys that I once feared to lose. There's the answer to whatever misery or struggle or heartache you're facing in life. There are these fruitless joys. They, they bring a measure of joy, but they're fruitless. They never seem to bring the ultimate fulfillment that you desire. But you live in terror of losing them. Just The idea of facing life without those fruitless joys is more than you can handle. Augustine said, oh, how sweet it was. All it wants to be rid of those fruitless joys... You, God, drove them from me, but that isn't enough. You took their place. How do you conquer the allure of one pleasure? It's by the satisfaction from a superior pleasure. You took their place. You who are sweeter than all other joys. My God, my light, and my salvation. So here's my advice. One word of counsel. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the exhortation of Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that You are sufficiently satisfying, beautiful, intriguing, inexhaustible in Your glory and Your power that we could never even begin to think of comprehending You fully. But for now and eternity... You've given us by Your grace the great opportunity, the incredible privilege for hell-deserving sinners that we might enjoy You and delight in You to Your glory and to Your praise. We thank You for this in Jesus' name. 
Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.